Hello and welcome to another Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison and I've got Ian Dunt, tanned, rested and ready to fill you in on the big issues of the next seven days. Morning, Ian. Nice to have you back. How are you doing? Morning. Thanks, Ben. I don't think I've ever been less... T- I think I might actually be translucent at this stage. Right, you haven't f- physically manifested yet. <laughs> exactly. You're still just a figment of your own imagination. Well, <laughs> let's get straight into it and maybe, maybe it'll give you corporeal form. <laughs> First up today... The government's robust border regime has come into effect uh, this morning. All British citizens and UK residents returning from 33 high-risk countries will have to quarantine in government-approved hotels for 10 days at a cost of 1,750 quid. There's widespread support for strong measures, isn't there, generally speaking, across the political continuum. Why is it taking so long for something like this to come in? It is quite a complex thing to organise, but they, I mean, all the evidence right now is that we're in for a few days of them, at least, of them bollocking this up to some considerable margin. So the booking website last week looked like it was all over the place. It's taken absolutely months to to get this thing off the board. The thing that's troubling me at the moment is that, I mean, according to the Times, the people coming in from the red list arrivals are free to mix in the airport with those who came in from other countries and on planes. So you, you sort of think before they go into the hotel quarantine, they can then mix with a bunch of people that are going to go out into the community. That seems to make absolutely no sense to me at all. You also add to that the fact that, you know, when we first got coronavirus, we didn't get it directly from China. We got it from places like Italy. So in fact, even having a red list is seen by many experts as a completely insufficient way of doing this. So it, it seems likely, and, you know, it's not as if there isn't much data to sort of back this up in terms of previous government policy over the last 12 months, that they've managed to find a halfway house where it takes a tremendous amount of effort in order to create a system that doesn't achieve the thing that it's supposed to achieve and that probably they can't really articulate precisely what it is they're trying to achieve anyway, except for the fact that they want to avoid negative newspaper headlines. So the, the fines for people who fail to quarantine uh, run from £5,000 to £10,000. They've been attacked as, uh, as disproportionate. Are they? I mean, is this part and parcel of, of simply looking like you're doing something tough and decisive rather than actually affecting behaviour? I mean, that. I mean, the 10,000 is a bit I mean, If you're going to have a quarantine policy, you do need to enforce the quarantine policy. And, you know, you would expect people to try and get out from underneath it. So that didn't that didn't strike me as particularly dreadful i mean the, the bit that struck me as completely unreasonable was the the threat although i don't think it would be actualized of a 10 year up to a 10 year jail sentence for lying about where you'd been which really did see i mean pretty much any kind of sort of prison sentence seemed to me to be completely completely cack-handed way of doing it and spoke to and encouraged that kind of anti lockdown militancy that you see on sort of on the Tory backbenches where people are motivated, you know, by making what's saying our ancient English liberties and blah, 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 blah. Now, all of that might be nonsense. But if you're going to pass a policy that could activate more of that kind of rhetoric, it would be threatening people with 10-year jail sentences for lying about which country they've been in. Uh, it's not clear whether any of that will really happen. I think it's very unlikely anyone will be going to jail for 10 years on the basis of it. But just them saying it was profoundly unhelpful. The fines themselves seem, I mean, you, you do have, if you're going to put in a policy like this, you really do have to try and make sure that people stick to it. So, you know, more like 5,000 than 10,000, I would have thought, but you, do, you are going to need to have a fine there. Speaking of the uh, the backbenches and the ancient English liberties, uh, over the weekend we were seeing the right-wing COVID recovery group demanding that all regulations be removed by April. And on schools reopening, Robert Halfen, the chairman of the uh, Education Select Committee, told the Telegraph, we need to make sure March the 8th is signed in blood, not just a line in the sand. So, I mean, they are 
pushing hard, continually to push hard. How does quarantine fit in with that? Are, are they uh, are they going to be seeing that as yet another curtailment of your right to, I don't know, drive sheep across Westminster Bridge or whatever these rights? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the funny part is quarantine should be the thing that activates what they want. I mean, it should be the perfect policy for these guys. You know, they're all they're all the old Brexit guys, right? So you've closed the border and you get all the internal in the country freedoms as a result of having closed the border. So they should be all over it. But of course, there's very little consistency to these guys. It's mostly a series of emotional reactions. So on that basis, they don't seem to be. Their calls at the moment, I mean, it's fucking, it really is quite upset. You just sort of think like, they, they think, it's almost as if these guys think, you know what, maybe we can just sneak in a fourth wave of infections before we actually deal with this thing, if we're very, very quick about it. They're, the situation that we're in right now is ultimately quite simple. And it's, by the way, the reason the government isn't really clear on how we are going to emerge from lockdown, which is that we don't really have the data at the moment on certain key issues. One of them is we don't know how much a South African variant is able to dodge the vaccines or, in fact, the immunity of people who've already had COVID. We also don't know how well the vaccines deal with severe illness on the basis of COVID. And we don't really know yet how much they prevent infection. Now, these are all really, really important data points. We have some early data that suggests it, but we don't have all the information that we need in order to make a judgment. And that's the data that you use in order to come up with a policy of how you emerge. And I think actually, to be fair, at the moment, and there's no guarantee they won't fuck this up later, there does seem to be awareness of that in government. There seems to at least be hesitancy to come up with something because they know that the data isn't there. So for the for these guys, you know, for, for these Tory MPs to be, to be actually saying you need to come up with this before the data is there is to repeat, it's almost pointless saying this. I mean, these guys, we know just how catastrophically inept they are by this stage, but it is repeating all the mistakes they made in the first place, now doing it all over again. But we are seeing a lot of, of rhetoric to the effect that we're past the worst, you know, 15 million vaccinations and so forth, light at the end of the tunnel, all this kind of thing. That's going to intensify pressure from the likes of the COVID recovery group to reopen schools in the, in the absence of that data, because they'll be able to say, well, look, you know, we're past the worst. You told us we're past the worst. You know, but to reopen non-essential businesses. I mean, is, is this Theresa May all over again, like a weak government buffeted by its own backbenchers? <laughs> well, not, it's not quite, is it? Because they, cause it's mostly about triangulating them. It's not what we found with Theresa May was that the early days of Brexit were her just capitulating to every single sort of demand from the hardcore rump of Brexiters until she finally decided, right, you know, th there's this one area that I can't move on, which is Ireland. And then everything exploded for her. In this case, it's usually triangulating. So it's basically saying, on the one hand, we've got what the lunatics are saying. And then on the other hand, we've got what the public health guys are saying. And we'll find the middle ground. Now, the middle ground in a pandemic doesn't do you a lot of good, but there is a, there's a slight sort of sort of strategic difference between those two cases. I mean, the thing is, it, it is never going to be as bad. I mean, I haven't, it's been a long time since I've seen anyone suggest otherwise. It's not going to be as bad as anything that we've seen in the first part of this year. You know, that, I think it's very, 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 it's vanishingly unlikely that we will ever see death rates at the, you know, and 1,000, 1,400 a day that we saw then simply because of the vaccines. I mean, that, that is the core thing here, that it's just very unlikely we get there. But that doesn't mean that you go, well, that's fucking fine now. Let's just everyone go out to the pub because you will still get people dying if you do that. And there is a sort of old fashioned idea of every life counts. And you might actually want to save these lives and try to reduce as much of the damage over the next few months as we possibly, possibly can, especially when we don't know what's going on with the variants and we don't really know what's going on with the vaccines. I mean, 
the, the thing with the giving one dose rather than two or rather extending the period of the second dose is it's hard to talk about this stuff because you need to be wary of encouraging hesitancy but it is a it is a punt you know it is a risk it's a calculated risk but it is a risk and we're only now getting the data that, that seems to suggest that actually it's a very good strategy to take could easily go another way at the moment we're just in that world where things are improving but we just don't know all the data we need in order to come up with a firm policy idea of how we emerge from this thing. And until we do, only the most irresponsible of people would suggest we make clear plans now for a future that we cannot currently foresee. Well, speaking of clear plans now for a future we can't foresee, Ian, Ian, what about holidays? Because last week it was a load of mixed messages about whether to book or not to book. Quarantine's obviously going to affect the travel industry. There was five-hour queues at Heathrow last week. Is the this vexed question, this tedious front-page favourite of, oh, you, you will be able to go on your holidays, are you expecting that to uh, you know come into focus again this week? Because it is the one that gets wheeled out over and over again. What about my summer holiday? It is. And by the way, I find it really revealing that that's what we talk about. Because... I mean, 14 million people in this country weren't born in this country, you know, and, and there's more if you look at second generation, third generation immigrants who are used to going to see their family every year, their extended family, or used to having some of their extended family come over to visit them every year. Now, these immigrant families, including couples who do not live together, um, have been completely separated, and yet they are not mentioned even fucking once in the coverage. They never come up. Instead, it's all like, will you be able to go to Mallorca? which seems to me just so much of a lesser concern than people actually being able to be with their loved ones. But that's basically where we are. It's the channel by which we talk about it. I think ultimately they will come up with some kind of route, especially if people who've, who've had the vaccine. I think that will be the direction that we go in. But there'll be a lot more interminable chatter about this bullshit before we get to that policy stage because that is really quite a long way off. I also think anyone, look, I'm speaking as someone who booked two holidays in desperate attempts to fucking escape this nightmare <laughs> over the last six months and had to cancel both of them because of lockdowns, I would just say to people, I, I would be pretty wary of booking anything right now. Just stop booking holidays, in. It's clearly down to you. You are the uh, <laughs> the trigger for this thing. So before we move on, speaking of borders, Article 16, the border in the Irish Sea continues to fester. The DUP is trying to undermine the deal that they themselves enabled. They've got a big petition on the go. Are you expecting developments on that this week, or are you expecting it to simply trundle on in the background? Well, this is this is going to be trundling on in the background, you know, for a very, very long time. If you look at the interview that Boris Johnson did yesterday in the US, he twice refused that he was really going to stick by the protocol. But they are talking, you know, they're talking. This is the thing. You can't change the fundamentals of what, they voted for with Northern Ireland. You know, it is no longer the case that the UK is a seamless sort of customs territory on its own right. There will be checks on goods going from GB to NI and NI to GB. That is the future. That is how it works. It is no longer a unified customs territory. However, it does matter that they're talking. That was a core thing. Do you remember when we used to talk about deal versus no deal? The thing you wanted to avoid was both camps going off into their little sort of fiefdoms and just shooting accusations at one another. Now, what you get with a deal is you get a forum for further discussion. And that's what we have right now, as, as sort of tetchy and acrimonious as it can be a lot of the time. They are talking and they do kind of ultimately, in many areas, sort of want the same thing. It is not an impossible situation to manage. And the, the cooler heads will ultimately be, this is where we are. We have to make it work. You know, even triggering 16, 
It doesn't just cancel everything. You know, people can do retaliatory actions on the basis of it. It doesn't end your problems. It just escalates them to a new level of seriousness. So ultimately, we are where we are. They're going to have to work around this thing. It is a shoddy, shitty situation to be in, but at least you have dialogue over it. And I think that dialogue, you know, beyond the threats and thing, I think I do think that's going to continue throughout the year, and we'll be in a better place towards the end of the year of working out just how serious this thing is going to be. Meanwhile, the government is desperately trying to get on the front foot with policies that it actually wants to pursue. And naturally, in the middle of a pandemic, the most important thing to worry about is statues. Over the weekend, the government announced in the Telegraph, of course, uh, plans for a free speech champion. Uh, and it warned culture and heritage organisations not to re-examine British history. The free speech champion, worst superhero ever, will be based within the office for students. <laughs> a regulator which represents students' interests. I'll be interested to know what students think about this. Ian, what's going on here? Does the Toby Young job creation scheme really need that much help <laughs> um toby young runs into a phone box tears off his shirt underneath <laughs> free speech champion up up and away anyway I, it, look, it's hard to work out what if anything they're babbling about by reading the telegraph article i mean the telegraph article you couldn't ask you know you would you would see russian revolutionary papers in 1917 that would have more critical distance from the government that they were covering than these guys. I mean, it is really, really just, it's the kind of copy that you just think, fuck me, if I ever get to the stage where I write this stuff, someone just make sure I take care of my own problems because it is just intolerable to see journalists churn it out like this. Like they're fucking transcribers for ministers. Anyway, we're going to get a site, I think, I think it's either Tuesday or Wednesday from Gavin Williamson as to what core policy details, if any, this announcement actually has. But it has two parts to it. The first one is this free speech champion who will give fines to student unions, you know, who, who don't live up to free speech. Now, just consider for a moment, what the fuck does that actually look like? Does that mean, I mean, do they, is there like a list of approved government commentators that have to be invited? Is it that if, if a student union decides to uninvite someone, then they're able to give them a fine? On what basis do you make that decision? What if you just, if, if you invite someone, let's say, and then you later find out that they, they once in their lives did Holocaust denial. Are you going to get fined for uninviting this person by the state? That is fucking insane. Now, and I'm saying this to someone who's obviously, actually, I don't think it's absurd to be concerned about free speech issues in newspapers or even in student unions. I think it's completely legitimate to be concerned about this stuff. And I am concerned about it myself, just not the state's role to come up with rules for how this works. And in fact, doing so, especially as part of this culture war narrative, this anti-woke attack, just contributes to that idea that free speech is somehow this right-wing attack tactic that is deployed by the government in order to force you to take on people that you don't want to speak. I mean, that just seems to me the worst possible thing you can do for free speech. The second part is, if anything, even more fantastically inane, which is to call in, you know, heritage brand, sort of... Uh, uh, I, think, I think they're thinking of, what's the fuck, I've forgotten their name, it's way too early, the people that run the big country houses. and, and well, National, National Trust. 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 They've been brought in for a round table. Yeah. For a, they're coming in for a, a high-level conversation with Dowden. Yeah, it, this, but this is fucking extraordinary. What, to be told, essentially, that you can't criticise British history. Now, I can't even begin to say how fucking illiterate that is. History, obviously, I mean, no one, to even say this, makes takes a piss take of our own capacity for human thought 
History obviously changes all the time. Our assessment of how events played out, our, our impressions of what they mean morally, whether it's more or less critical at any given moment, they're not just stamped as legitimate by the fucking government of all people. In fact, this bears really disturbing um, echoes of what Orban does in Hungary. Okay, he does exactly the same shit with historical institutes in Hungary who were told you can't publish this kind of material that shows the multicultural history of Hungary. You can't do this that criticizes the Hungarian Empire at any point. Um, in fact, you're supposed to be positive and monocultural. It's the government control of historical, academic, and institutional work NGOs. Now, that is very, very similar to what you're seeing here. So we don't know the details yet. The opening, just broad brushstrokes of it look disturbing as fuck. You need to watch very, very carefully for what Gavin Williamson comes up with uh, later on, because as much as it just seems like this nonsense culture war fluff, actually some of the ideas in here are really quite profoundly dangerous and authoritarian. Well, Dowden's spokesperson told The Telegraph that Dowden was trying to defend our culture and history from the noisy minority of activists constantly trying to do written down. Who can he possibly have in mind here? <laughs> what kind of people? <laughs> I mean, these guys, I think, are really just talking about Black Lives Matter. And you saw... Um, just a few days ago, Pretty Patel doing this kind of nonsense attack of saying, well, she was asked, would you take the knee? She said, no, I won't take the knee because I don't have time. <laughs> <laughs> it takes ages. <laughs> she got lumbago or something. She, she's going to take her forever to get that. Oh, God, it hurts. Hang on a minute. Oh, it will fetch my stick. It was just this sort of showreel of the most inane excuses for stuff. I mean, the other one was to say, this is not the right way to protest, which he was talking about sort of Black Lives Matter protests over the summer, which is just that incredible, because what you get, usually when there's any violent sort of protest, you get a minister going, well, you know, we only believe in peaceful protests. Now, there's no violence at the protest, so instead you get, well, this isn't quite the right way to protest. It's never quite the right fucking way to protest against racism, right? It's never quite the right way for these guys. So you're always doing something a bit wrong. Really what they want is just shut the fuck up stay at home and stop complaining. That's really what their core message is. But instead, because they don't quite have the confidence to say that, it's dressed up in, I just don't have the time and I don't think you're doing protests in the right way. I'm sure the Black Lives Matters activists will be all ears when Priti Patel comes up with her other strategic ways of protesting that would be far more effective and will get the ear of ministers. But until that time, we just have to listen to her shonking excuses. Well, I mean, there are, there are multiple attack points on this war on woke caper. Those reports that ministers were angered by the National Trust's colonial countryside scheme, which kind of educates children on how certain, you know, historical uh, properties and buildings have connections to slavery. There's been uh, shots across the bow of charities saying that they shouldn't get involved in politics. Like, how can you say that? Everything is political. This is clearly happening because it plays well with what I suppose we have to start referring to as the base. Where does it lead? I mean, if, if, if we're going to see the remake, uh, uh, this government's lost a year of, of its program to desperately trying to catch up with COVID. We've got another four years of this government. Is this going to be the core of what they're about? Well, this is the, I don't think it will, I don't think it'll be the core, but clearly they love talking about it. And most of it will be meaningless fluff. And some parts of it, when, especially when they start interfering, it's, you know, even at the moment, this does have a freezing effect on the way that charities speak about stuff. It makes them more wary of having a critical view of cultural issues, of having a critical view of government policies. Um, and we could get statute that is actually genuinely quite threatening to the independence um, of charities and of NGOs, which is, you know, when you look at the independence of charities and NGOs, that is just historically, these are the guys that get attacked at the same time as the press, 
the same time as the judiciary, the same time as parliament, the great liberal sort of institutions. When those guys get attacked, typically you see attacks on, on the other institutions as well. So it, amid all the fluff, my, my, the way I suspect this will play out is that 90% of the time that you see this anti-woke agenda, it'll just be the most god-awful nonsense fluff that makes no real difference. And the most sensible thing to do is to try and dodge the debate rather than fueling it. But 10% of the time, there's going to be razor blades in, inside of the cotton ball. And actually, there'll be some really pernicious, dangerous shit. And I think possibly this week's announcement will be an example of that. And that there's actually something really quite sinister that operates in the heart of, 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 of this thing. So you, you, it's, it's a tough one to call. But you do need to be quite suspicious. And you do, unfortunately, need to, need to look into the details of what they're doing rather than just ignoring it. Because potentially, there is some rather quite dangerous stuff in there. So to be very clear, we've got to have absolute free speech in universities and campuses, and there'll be a government free speech champion to make sure that happens. But in charities and in heritage organisations, we we can't have free speech about the history and the past because that's dangerous and the government has to present it. So just to make sure we know where the free speech is going to happen. That's really, really well summarised. And you you know what's so fucking irritating about this is that there is a middle ground between the government's position of British history of we never did anything wrong, we've always been wonderful, anyone who has any critical assessment of British past in any capacity is somehow talking the country down. And what you often see sort of online and in activist circles on the left, which is that Britain is no more than a colonial butcher and there's nothing in our past that anyone could possibly be proud of in any capacity whatsoever. And there is a world which... I don't want to be fucking too optimistic, but I do think probably the majority of people might actually want to discuss of you could have an objective conversation about the past where you did many things wrong. And this country does have to come to terms with some of the things it did wrong. And also several things right that one might want to discuss about the way we contributed to the history of ideas and the kind of way that a free society operates around the world because of some British innovations. Now, it's not impossible to have that discussion on that basis. But right now, Seeing the culture war go from the future and the present, really on the Brexit, just suddenly sweep like the eye of Sauron into the fucking past and go, now, now, now that is, now your appraisal of the past is completely indicative of which of these culture war tribes are. It is such a depressing prospect for anyone who wants an adult conversation about the past of this country. Do you expect much resistance or even contribution to this from Labour? I mean, Keir Starmer seems to be going for a progressive patriotism stance on this. You'd imagine this is a prime opportunity to say, yes, we love our country, and because we love it, we will look at what was bad in its past and do exactly what you've just said, you know, highlight the amazing uh, contributions to the world that, that Britain has made and not attempt to defend the dreadful things that we've done. It should be an open goal, shouldn't it, for that kind of project? You know what, I agree. that Actually, I think that would be the kind of thing that could allow Starmer to demonstrate both to his own sort of base who are concerned about the flag waving, but also to the country at large, you can have a sensible adult conversation about what there is to be proud of in a country without just having this kind of frenzied insecurity of covering up anything you think you might be ashamed of because that would be talking the country down. I don't think that that's where we are. And I, I also don't think that Starmer would, is looking to use the very few moments that he has access to the public to talk about those kind of issues. I mean, he's going to want to say stuck on COVID. And it's also worth pointing out, we don't know yet whether the announcement this week will be the ball of cotton or the razor blades inside. You know, we just don't know the details yet in order to see how severe the danger might be. So on that basis, I wouldn't expect to be seeing much of Labour on this issue. Although, you know, and I say this as someone who's generally quite supportive, I'm, we're not seeing much of Labour on any issue at the moment, to be honest. 
couple of smaller things to look at before we go. There's a one-off session of the DCMS committee revisiting the live touring mess uh, happening on Tuesday, where our musicians, our artists, our performers, our support staff cannot get into Europe to do the tours that they've come to depend upon. This has become another high-profile thorn in the side. Do you expect much to much to come of this particular committee or this particular meeting? Do you think this one is going to... Is this one going to develop? I mean, I think we're going to keep on talking about it, and that's primarily what select committees accomplish. I mean, there was once a past where they would provide a report and there was some outside chance the government would act on it. But to be honest, it's been a while since we've seen much of that, unless they're a friendly committee. And in this capacity, I can't imagine it's going to make any difference. There are There is a sort of lukewarm commitment of further conversations on this, and there's nothing to stop it from happening. I mean, there's no, you know, there's no, there's no formal barrier to people being able to come up with these arrangements, you know, even once the deal is done. But nevertheless, I, I can't see, I, I certainly can't see what's been called for, which is these sort of two-year passports to every country on a very low cost without the need for any bureaucracy. I, I don't think we're going to get anything like that much. There might be some kind of artist visa that makes things a little bit easier, but I don't think it will be two years. I don't think it will give the degree of freedom that people are looking for. I think there'll be a lot more conversation about this. The slight danger that the Tories will go, oh, this is just the lovies. It almost plays into their lovey narrative. Um, and if there is anything that happens, it will take a very long time and it will be well below what is being asked for right now by the creative uh, sector. Just finally, before we let you go to start your day and take on corporeal form, what did you make of the Northern Ireland to Scotland tunnel announced over the weekend by the High Speed Rail Group? Is this, a, this sounds like a Boris Johnson train set of the first order. He does. And I, I, my understanding um, in the early days when he first talked about this was that, that there are technical reasons that it's very, very difficult to achieve. I mean, when they first talked about it, it was, a, it was a bridge. And there seems to be, I'm sorry, my, my geography knowledge is not, is not very, very strong, but there's some sort of trend. Ireland is an island, Ian. It's to the west of Britain. <laughs> yes, no, not really. So it's outside of London. Is, is that what you're saying? Outside of London, very much outside of um, London. There's some sort of trench, like a thousand, very, very deep trench that makes this sort of stuff uh, very, very complicated. Um, the stuff that I saw over the weekend was was, was sort of suggesting, actually, that, that a tunnel might be feasible. I have to say, if it was feasible, I would find that really quite an attractive prospect. And that, you know, generally you're in the business of bringing communities as close together as you possibly can and easing travel between communities. If there was any technical ability to do it, I think that would be quite an exciting prospect. But I'm not on top of, of the various complications of what it entails. Ian, thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. As if you think that I would, I, I am fucking injecting this coffee into my eyes. Listeners, there's a new daily on Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. We're recording tomorrow's panel show later today, so why not subscribe so you don't miss any editions? Back tomorrow. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>